When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Cool, let's just do it one more time. Why? Because we love making movies! Hey everybody, I'm Aaron Jellabolo and welcome to my podcast, Because We Love Making Movies. Today on the program, we're talking to a music editor. Now, this podcast was born because I wanted to show people the invisible artists behind movies, and music editing is absolutely one of the great unsung arts in filmmaking. My guest today has worked on some of my very favorite films with some of my very favorite directors, as well as some of my favorite composers. Her credits are many, but to name a few, Something Wild, Big, Silence of the Lambs, The Age of Innocence, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, Moonrise Kingdom, Lady Bird, Eighth Grade, Little Women, A Master Builder, as well as The Undoing, and many, many more. From the Jaws theme to John Carpenter's Halloween, or Stuck in the Middle with You from Reservoir Dogs to Tom Petty's American Girl in Silence of the Lambs, the perfect piece of music married to a perfect image in a movie is magic. And for almost 40 years, Susanna Perrick has been helping to make magic. Welcome, Susanna, and thank you for doing this. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. So I want to talk to you about how you got to where you are, but first, in your own words, I'd love for you to tell us uh, what, you know, what does a music editor do? What do you do in your own words? Uh, you know, that's a question that I get asked very often and uh, because there's so much little known about it. And I think it's um, perhaps because um, it's a field where we really are, allowed to or open field to create or have an open field to create um, our job in a way that um, suits or that suits each one of us. I think that perhaps every music editor might have a different story or different focus uh, or different, you know, to talk about the whole job itself um, I can do that in a you know in a very short in a, in a one sentence meaning mm. that you take the music language of the film from the uh, from its inception uh, to the final mix stage uh, during that period whether you work closely with uh, composers uh, music supervisors uh, directors of course uh, and uh, picture editors, uh, to uh, uh, to finesse and build whatever that uh, uh, particular language is. So basically, you the music editor is the one who takes the musical journey from its beginning until its very end. Um, so that's in general. Let's say mm-hmm. um, I um, love to work with uh, I with the directors and composers that uh, 
and I think we all do, you know, that where a team is formed and where you have a, um, a language um, that's communal and uh, um, without too much explanation, which very much depends on your sensibilities. And that's how we form teams, that we have mm-hmm. similar outlooks, not only on that film, but on life, on taste, on um arts in general, on politics, on, <laughs> uh, you know, it, 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 it takes the, the whole person that you give yourself uh, to a certain project. And that's when it becomes the most fulfilling, mm. um, when you can uh, contribute in a way where you are taken on a journey that you have not really uh, predicted. Mm. And there for each film is its own journey. I learn on every film, I learn something new and that never ends. And that's the beauty of what we do mm-hmm. because each story is a new story. It could have been told, the story itself could have been told many times in the uh, history of the world, but it's always individual because of the person who makes it. Mm-hmm. So there you mm-hmm. enter into that story as a person to contribute something to it. And I love to uh, uh, read and research and uh, open a new page with each uh, project that comes along. And that's mm-hmm. what makes it exciting. And so how did you start? How did you, how did you, uh, uh, where, where did you grow up and how did you make your way to, to, to a life in the arts? I uh, I grew up in uh, what was then Yugoslavia, now oh, wow. okay. Croatia. Uh, that's where I finished my first degree, which was in uh, English and Italian language and literature. Always wanting to study film, but very much under the influence of my parents, who were not very happy <laughs> about the choice because of the prospect of... Uh, uh, of, a, of, a, of a life in arts. So after I uh, received my first diploma, they gave me full uh, open uh, reign into pursuing what I wanted to pursue. So I started fresh and I uh, 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 enrolled in a film school in Chicago. I moved, my parents were in the States. Uh, my father was in the diplomatic corps. And so I joined them and uh, um, enrolled in Columbia College Wow! in Chicago. And that's where it was a perfect school for me at the time because I was such a novice. I didn't know anything about films except for my passion for them. And, and, wh- and where do you think that came from? Where, where, tell me, what was the first time you, th- you realized you had a passion for films? I had a babysitter when I was little who had a boyfriend who was a projectionist. And she took me to Louis on her dates. <laughs> so I ended up sitting in the cinema while she was in the projection room. And I ended up watching movies <laughs> from when I was a little girl. <laughs> Do you, that, wow, that is wonderful. That's, that's right, out of, right out of Cinema Paradiso. <laughs> exactly. How, exactly. Well, do you remember some of those first movies that just, just made you say, wow? A lot of I, them were foreign movies. And mm-hmm. I remember Sophia Loren. And oh. I remember, I don't know, I don't remember which films, but there was no, there was no code in what you could watch or not watch. Mm-hmm. We didn't have the restrictions, the R ratings. So I think I watched everything that uh, was ever mm-hmm. on the, uh, uh, and I was, I, I don't, 
of course, I didn't understand them, but I was exposed to the uh, fascinating experience of watching images come to life on screen and um, hearing different languages and um, fell in love with the experience. And then I remember when I was, I think, entering college, I think I was, and I remember the day and the time I was in Brussels and I went to the cinema with a, my cousin. We were visiting there together. And, um, and we went to see a film. We had absolutely no idea what we were going to see. Don't look now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I was transfixed. I was terrified, but I was transfixed. Wow. And that was the moment when I decided I wanted to pursue this. Well, that's so, in- that's so interesting because that's such a, uh, uh, that's a groundbreaking movie. You know, it, it, it's, it's Nick, in terms of editing and music and performance, and it's a shocking film, you know, it's shocking. like a, wonderful. Shocking. Unforgettable but, and shocking and terrifying, but so, mm. uh, uh, so visceral and yes. so um, um, memorable that I was completely transfixed mm-hmm. by it. Mm-hmm. And, and what was that like in terms of how you found your way? It was wonderful because, it, you know, I came from a very um, academic, uh, classical academic environment of the University of Zagreb uh, to a much freer um, environment of studying film where instead of uh, 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 repeating what is said in a book, you were asked to actually have an opinion on something. And that was the biggest change in my education. Mm. I was uh, um, frightening at first, but it built my freedom of expression and uh, thought. And uh, that I will always be thankful for. And it was a wonderful school. It was a small school at the time. Um, What was really interesting about it is at that time, because it was a now it's a much bigger uh, college in, uh, and, and wider uh, acceptance uh, uh, range at the time mm-hmm. uh, as they were building their, 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 their image and their programs. They were accepting students with previous degrees only or experience. I so I found myself in an environment where I wasn't the oldest, although I had the I would I would have been otherwise, but there were people who were already <laughs> uh, either working in that field or came, changed their minds in their professions, and so the um, the, the 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 open field of philosophical thought and the interest in what we were now studying was very even in our uh, in our in this environment, and we were there because we really wanted to do this. It wasn't because we stumbled upon it or mm. uh, were fast. We were a little bit more grown up, let's say, in, mm. the, in mm-hmm. our reasons of being there mm-hmm. and uh, had as passionate teachers that were. I had one of the best history of film teachers who opened my view, my mind, my passion for uh, for film history, uh, cinematech, uh, 
world global cinema mm. and um, they had access to prints. Uh, so we were, for the wow. first time, I was watching, you know, German expressionists on a big screen or, wow. you know, the French, the from Vigo to, uh, you know, through New Wave. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that was uh, an incredibly uh, wonderful education. Mm. I finished it, um, it within two and a half years because I had so many credits that they accepted from my for a previous diploma. So I stayed on though as an assistant teacher so I could take more classes on wow. my own. And um, so that was uh, Columbia at the time. And we were, what was also wonderful is that at we you didn't have to make a decision on which part of uh, the field you wanted to pursue. Mm. So for those uh, three years that I was there, we were went from being writers to actors to uh, set designers, uh, uh, cinematographers, uh, um, and uh, directors. And each one of us, we formed our mm. teams and exchanged mm. those roles. And I thought that was a really wonderful uh, approach to the beginning of mm. your uh, once career in cinema. Absolutely. I feel like people nowadays, it, you really have to stress to try and learn every aspect of filmmaking, you know, and, and not just to be exactly. able, not just to be able to do it, but to be able to respect the person who does it, right? That Absolutely. And to understand it, mm-hmm. to understand the process. How, it, how does, uh, you know, how does it, how does the set designer um influence uh, the cinematographer or vice versa Mm. and the director and how does that image, you know, which may be based on uh, something uh, that was uh, known or, you know, whether a painting or a certain style references of older Mm. cinema that Mm -hmm. are part of the language that you have to have as your weapon and as your uh, uh, as your tool, actually, I should say, not a weapon, but a tool <laughs> that you can that you can actually converse and 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 that's what I stress in my teachings now to have the 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 references that are uh, that that uh, you might have to understand mm-hmm. in one mm-hmm. word. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Uh, how to, how that that the communication in among all the departments. What does a gaffer do? Who is a gaffer? Who is a grip? Mm-hmm. Why are there so many? I mean, all of those. I think that that brings so much respect, as you said, to uh, the uh, filmmaking itself. And what an amazingly courageous undertaking it is mm-hmm. to make a film. Absolutely. And so how then do you, do you find your way? I, I believe to, I assume to New York and to, to, yeah. to, to music editing and so how do you take your first steps into the business once you graduate? And is that terrifying or how do you, or are you just so excited? Of Does course, it? <laughs> every stage is terrifying. I yes. mean, every stage, still now, yes, you know, I know, every new I, film I know. <laughs> is, you know, you have those, not, I shouldn't say terrifying, but those butterflies in your stomach. Will you every really day. be able to understand it? And 
and will you will your suggestions in what the what that musical language is will they be in tune and in sync with what the uh, message and the core of that story and the style of that filmmaking is. So that never goes away, which mm. I think is wonderful. Mm, mm. Sometimes it is terrifying, but that's okay. That's, you know, that passion, I think, that speaks. Mm. But um, what happened is that I, I started, uh, all my friends and I in Chicago, we knew that we were going to, if we wanted to pursue working in feature films, which was at the time, you know, the our, you know, that's everybody's mm. goal. Like, you know, you go to a film school, you want to make a film or mm. um, the documentaries are not yet. You're too young to understand the beauty of a documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and um, Chicago was known for industrial films. Mm-hmm. It didn't have a community or, a, or, a, or an industry. Mm. that supported uh, feature filmmaking. So the destinations were either New York or Los Angeles. For me, because of my background, going west was very uh, scary. Mm -hmm. It was further away. So I wanted to go closer to where I came from. So (laughs) east was the place. (laughs) (laughs) And then... um, were you know while we were still studying or at that time i was uh, being an assistant and studying we also looked for work to mm-hmm. see you know to whether commercials uh, industrial films whatever and uh, uh, a film called four friends comes to town arthur penn is the director uh, yeah. and the story is of uh um, um, a, an immigrant family that came from Yugoslavia in the 50s, wow. uh, written by Steve Tesich, largely autobiographical. Hmm. And um, the fact that I had that background and knew the language was my way in as a production assistant. Wow. Um, the filming was, a lot of it was on location, and the locations were in the areas outside of Chicago where groups of immigrants would form. You know, mm-hmm. there was a mm-hmm. Yugoslavian community or, or I should say Croatian and Serbian community where Very I first yeah. found out that there was a, right. that there was a, you know, that there was a disagreement. You know, I grew up in a, in a country that wanted to believe we were one. <laughs> and uh, I, I have friends from all over that country, you know, that then separated us by borders, but not by our love. And um, so the um, extras were all of, were authentic uh, immigrants because of their look, of their language, of their, so the reality of the situation uh, asked for that, you know, rather than pretending to be from that part of the world, there Mm -hmm. they were. So, Mm -hmm. but a lot of the older generation at that time, perhaps it happens these days as well, but much less because we're such a global uh, globally uh, savvy uh, uh, and uh, open society, world society today, um, one would hope. <laughs> but um, the older generation of people at that time didn't really fall into the ways and customs of their new country. Mm. Uh, they from their love and ache for the old 
home that they left behind. They retained uh, their culture, their language, their mm-hmm. food, uh, their habits, mm-hmm. and they never learned English. Oh, wow. Uh, their, their children did, of course, but, uh, and that was the new generation being born then. But the, um, the older ones were, um, wanted to stay in time. They were captured in time that they left. Uh, because a lot of them left for some for political reasons, but a lot of them for reasons, for economical reasons to, you know, there was a post-war generation to survive, to work in. And they, there was a lot of gathering, a lot of immigration around Chicago because of the industry mm-hmm. around there. So there were jobs. Mm. And um, so in any case, when, uh, when the big uh, scenes were to happen, the producers realized that, that uh, they could, the pe- people there couldn't understand the direction. <laughs> so I was called in as the translator. Wow. And so I would stand next to Arthur Penn. He was on a megaphone. Then I would get the megaphone and I would translate what he was saying to them. And that's how I met Arthur Penn. And he changed my life. Because he, we became very close, and at the end of the filming, he asked me if I would consider moving to New York. <laughs> wow. Wow. And by and the way, for, for the audience who doesn't know, Arthur Penn, you know, directed Bonnie and Clyde, you know, one yeah. of the great, great directors, uh, yeah. uh, sort of coming out of old Hollywood, you know, uh, basically. Exactly. Who was, uh, who, and then yeah. creating new Hollywood, right? Exactly. Mickey exactly. one, one of the, mm, you mm, know, one of mm. the really groundbreaking films mm. of the early 60s in mm-hmm. this, uh, in mm-hmm. this country cinema, you know, along with Cassavetes and uh, that uh, art cinema. I- Absolutely, and so he and so and so. Then you moved to New York on, uh, with, with with. And then he introduced me to the post production of uh, that same film, and they hired me as well, I, an apprentice, and, and I moved. Who, who was the editor on the film? And uh, was who was Barry that team? Malkin was the editor. Wow, not too bad. Not too bad. <laughs> and then, what, what, but what happened on the? I had no idea music editing existed. I so I was, you know, and it, it, even now, you know, I, I advise young people who are entering the film industry do anything. Everything is educational. You know, mm. you you uh, from being an assistant or an apprentice uh, in the sound department to the picture department. You know, in different parts of the sound department to visual effects, that's how you'll find your calling. Mm. But on, on Four Friends, uh, when we were on the set, um, and I, you know, as a PA, you get up early in the morning and you gather all the extras and you know, make sure that everybody has breakfast, your first one on the set. And it's pretty tough mm. work. Um, and uh, there, like in the afternoons, I would see this wonderful person walking completely, uh, you know, coming for lunch, let's say. And um, we were all stressed out, running around and, you know, and tired from early mornings. And here he comes leisurely in, has lunch, and then disappears. And then I see him again. So I asked to be, in, you know, he was, we were, probably similar age and uh and uh, there were other pas that were on that shoot um you know that we all became uh, uh, you know the bonding mm. of the set is the mm. best thing in the world mm, and, absolutely uh, absolutely you become a family you become a family and so he then 
gravitated towards us. And I found out, I didn't know what he did. And he said, I am a music editor. So, <laughs> and <laughs> so I thought, okay, uh, so what, so what his job was because there were, there were, there were the, the, the four friends are part of an, or of, a, of the school orchestra. Uh, and they were playing, they were rehearsing Dvorak's new symphony. And so he was there to watch over the rehearsals. So he would come in the afternoons and be in the, you know, we, we, while we were, you know, all in like, right. heat and dirt and mud and all <laughs> that, he was, you know, in, you, listening to music. So I thought, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I knew the set was not for me because I didn't have uh, in me t to be a director. I did not. I was not a cinematographer. It wasn't the creative uh, field in there that I would have uh, that wanted to pursue. Editing was always something that was very mysterious, and I was mm. curious about it because mm -hmm. I knew so. You know so little about it. There was the film, and then it goes behind doors, and nobody knows what's happening, and then a film comes out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and so, mm -hmm. but uh, as my travels then took me through, you know, first to the sound department of that same film, and then that sound department took me on to another film and another film, and I. Norman, Norman, Norman Holland was the music editor on Got it. Uh, and he was the first one to introduce me to it. We became great friends and um, and because he lived in New York and now I moved to New York and we continued our friendship throughout, uh, you know, his uh, life. He suddenly died a couple of years ago. I'm very sorry to hear that. Yeah. Uh, in any case, he was a he was my um, opening. He was my, like that star, you know, that, uh, that opened something for me that I didn't know existed. And it made sense for me because I was a musician when I was very young. Hmm. And uh, so music was always a part of my life, mm -hmm. but I never knew I would come back to it. And mm -hmm. somehow now that passion of music that I carried from the old world with the passion for film that I learned in the new world fulfilled my creative journey. And that's what I pursued. So how do you meet Jonathan Demi? Because if I'm, if I'm correct in my, I, I think I read basically something wild is really your first film. Yes. That, that you did as a music editor. And mm -hmm. I was, I was watching a, a interview with the with the late great Jonathan Demi, who who I just have to say, you know, I grew up on his movies, not really knowing it was him, because I, I'm, I'm, you know, I Silence of the Lambs was probably the first film because it was such a mainstream hit that yeah. as, a, as a person I said, oh, this is Jonathan Demi. It wasn't until I became a filmmaker, and actually, it was Paul Thomas Anderson who yes, said, of course, who said, who said. You know, his whole thing is, you know, uh, uh, what what filmmaker do you always think of? And he said, Jonathan Demi, Jonathan Demi, and Jonathan Demi. And I started really going back and realizing, oh my God, it's something wild. It's Married to the Mob. It's it's Mad Dog and Glory. It's so many films and and so many documentaries. And and so and and really, particularly those early films, they have so much to do with music. And in this yeah. in, in this interview, he said when he was getting ready to do something wild after a horrible experience on this movie Swing Shift. Yes. Uh, he said he met this new 
music editor. And he did. And, yeah. Well, in this interview, yeah, I'll send you the interview. And he oh. said, and he said, he said it was somebody who who he had not yet worked with, or or and maybe that's just mythologizing. But he said, he said, you guys came up with the idea to do the whole movie using source music. And and so anyway, I just want to I just want to talk about oh how God. how did you <laughs> how, how did you meet him and 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 what was that like? Oh, it, unforgettable because he, you know, he's had, he had such a uh, joy of life and passion for surprises. And uh, so I was, uh, at that time, there was one building basically in New York called, uh, Sa- a company called Sound One, mm. famous uh, for all of those films that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it was a post-production company that, mm. uh, dissolved uh, unfortunately but uh um the at the time uh they were the main uh post production facility mm. that um that uh, uh had spaces and mixing stages mm-hmm. for uh incoming for for a direct for productions mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it was ba- it was so tightly round that you, all these different productions were in that same building mm-hmm. on different floors let's say mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the most the biggest attraction to that was the fact that um uh uh that the uh there were there was starting with a m- great mixer lee dictor mm-hmm. who was lured by someone in a very wise way to come to make that his home uh. and uh so he is the one who, uh, you know, who um, brought with him the Mike Nicholses and and uh, 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 Robert Bentons and all of those the directors and mm, uh, mm. and then Tommy Fleischman came about and he joined uh, uh, and he so he's the one who then you know that's where Scorsese came to sound one and Jonathan mm. Demi came to sound one mm. so everybody was merging in that one building. I was an assistant to Tom Drescher, who taught me the art of music editing and the uh, sophistication that he had to his approach and his knowledge of music was incredibly inspiring to me. Uh, vast knowledge and uh, of classical repertoire and really um, such a deeply uh, professional and um, uh, thought through approach to every mm-hmm. film he was doing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I learned from him a lot. And uh, uh, and there is a time though in your assistantship, let's say, where mm-hmm. you realize that you're no longer such a great assistant because <laughs> you're longing so much to do that yourself. Mm-hmm. And um but nobody is going to then say, okay, now you're a music editor, here's a film. So you yeah. have to yourself make that leap and take that risk uh, and um, hope that somebody will take it. Yeah. And um, something wild was on the third floor of the uh, Sound One building. And uh, w- one of the editors was a great friend of, is a great friend of mine, Camila Toniolo. And... Um, she uh, knew about my passion and uh, she said, she urged me, she said, just go and 
not, they were looking for a music editor at the time, something wild was. And she said, go and knock on the door. You're in the building. It was much more informal at the time. You know, there were Friday nights. Everybody would gather. The bottles of vodka and whiskey were coming out of drawers and cigarettes and whatever. You know, that was Friday night at, the, at Sound One. It was pretty wonderful. Um, the camaraderie, you know, because we were all in the same hallway, but we'd have worked on different films. And so we, especially the assistants, knew each other mm. very well. And um, mm-hmm. so there was a, there was a family-like uh, uh, atmosphere. Mm. Uh, but I didn't know this, uh, you know, the, the, the Jonathan Demi team. And, um, and with Camila's urging, that's what I did. I went and I knocked on Craig McKay's door. He was uh, the editor of Something Wild. Camila was his second. Mm. And uh, he called, I knocked and I said, I'm looking for a job. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to be a music, I would like to be a music editor. I don't mm. have anything to show. Mm. And he said, well, let me call Jonathan because he's, you know. And so Jonathan came in and that smile walked in, you know, that's infectious smile. <laughs> and uh, and we met and they, you know, he had that kind of a wink. You never know. Is that good or is that bad? What is, you know, what is, is he really mm-hmm. enjoying this or is he, you know, am I reading it wrongly? Maybe I'm being ridiculous because I'm asking for something that I don't even know if I can do. And so I left and um, they called me two days later and he said, come over. So I came over, he said, here's the job. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Unforgettable. I'm, you know, the, so that took me on a journey with him for 35 years. Every mm. single film that he did. Documentaries, mm. features. I skipped maybe one for scheduling reasons and Every film. Amazing. Amazing. And, and Amazing. I, what I learned from him and- uh, And so, so, so let's, before we get to kind of, because uh, I, I would hate to just sort of sum it up without, you know, the, when, when you start on something wild, I, I imagine that, that on that first film, what you guys are kind of doing is, and what you're doing actually, because you said it's the first, first time you're doing this job, is you're figuring out how to do the job, you know, how, to, how you're going to do the job, not necessarily how someone has to do the job, but right. your, own, your own approach. And so how do you and Jonathan really start? And, and, and what from that first movie, and do you feel like what you, what the work you did on that movie was kind of how you then worked all those, on all those other films? Obviously it evolved, but, you yeah. know, yeah. Well, um, with Jonathan, there is not much talk mm. and there's not much introduction. Mm. You're just thrown into the middle of it all mm. uh, and, uh, and just figure it out. Mm. And um, at the time also, we were not in the digital platform yet. And actually, I was cutting on an upright movie wow, <laughs> that I still wow. have in my cutting room as a relic of all, because I, I think it's a wonderful piece of sculpture. Of course. And it's such a curiosity when students come in because they have no <laughs> idea what it is, let alone how to run it. And then I can run it. Well, then, you know, I get a plus. <laughs> um, but uh, um, so basically... 
we had to, you know, Jonathan uh, likes to uh, listen to a lot of music. Hmm. And he knew music and music that he remembers that he hmm. loved when he was a music critic, let's say. Hmm. And hmm. the music was always a very big part of his life. So the first thing was to transfer all of these albums that he had in mind hmm. onto mag magnetic stock. And then I would listen to them and I would start looking at the movie. And then he would ask, you know, what should, he would say, have suggestions. Let's try this here. Let's try that there. But then he would open up the forum and say, now you try something. Let me, let me see what you would think about this. And then mm. there were certain bands that started getting involved, like the feelies that uh, were also yeah, on the screen. And then we were using Jonathan Love to promote them. So we were using their music in the film as well. So how do we use their music? Mm. And and how do we change then the um, the feeling of the film from being a road movie into being kind of a very dark, tragedy? Absolutely. What Jonathan does in his film so beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. And he takes you for a surprise every time. And what will that be? So then that came to, you know, these conversations uh, with him that I would just follow him around, basically. Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that there was the the one moment that I remember that was instrumental in other uh, in my journey uh, was uh, there was there was a scene in something wild where the, the film turns and mm-hmm. that's when they are in the uh, uh, in the Seven Eleven shop and Ray Liotta's oh. character yes pulls out the gun, um, shows his real face, steals the cigarettes, and, uh, you know, it all turns around. Hmm. That scene was always imagined in Jonathan's mind with um, Walk on the Wild Side, the Lou uh, Reed song. Do, 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 do. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, so he invited Lou Reed to uh, watch the film, and then they had a conversation, and Lou Reed declined. And um, Jonathan is somebody who will never be taken down by something that happens that uh, is kind of out of his control. But he will use that new information as an inspiration mm. for something, for a new thought, you know, thinking maybe this is a sign that something else uh, was going to um, uh, work. And there's a song by the motels and that now the, now, what was the uh, Oh my God! The, no, this the scene in the uh, in the Seven uh, uh, Eleven when he yeah, takes yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. What's the name of the song? Now it escapes me. Oh, walk um, on the walk on the wild side or the no or the no mo- oh, the motels their, their song the mo- motels a new song so that he had in mind and I'll remember it. My God, it's just you know, <laughs> I was I'm so caught in the moment that I forgot the name of the song. It's okay. um, uh, that he was very. He always said that he always loved that song. Um, And so he said, Susanna, let's try instead of walk on the wild side. Let's try um, the motels. And I, uh, I did. And I spent probably a couple of days on that scene until I was uh, comfortable enough to show him what I had done. Mm. And then he, um, 
he, he came over, he came next to me and we watched together under earphones, of course, because the movie always so loud. <laughs> and he says to me, Susanna, this is great. He would always be like positive feedback was his mm. wonderful mm. way of expressing himself. He says, Susanna, this is great, but now go and surprise me. And so I had to now rethink the whole thing and uh, do something that um, Out of Control is the name of the song. And uh, I spent another two days and, uh, and then he came and says, that's it. <laughs> so every time, like he opened that, you know, don't follow what you think you should do, but use your imagination in telling the story mm. and try to put that song in the, uh, not to destroy the song, absolutely, you know, in no way, but, mm -hmm. uh, but how you place it or where the instrumental part will start, that all has a relevance. Mm -hmm. And you can manipulate a little bit without destroying the structure of a certain mm -hmm. song. Mm -hmm. uh, but think, think of what it's doing. Think of the story. Mm -hmm. Open yourself up and understand what you are telling. And, and it's also so wonderful that he would empower you and, and, and not, you know, so I feel like so many directors can be very closed minded to yes. when they're sitting with a wonderful artist, you know, a music editor, a film editor, a cinematographer, and they just shut down ideas. And, yes. and, and it, it sounds like Jonathan was not that person. It sounds he like was he, the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. The opposite. He, he was uh, the opposite. The same as, you know, who is that, that Roman Polanski. Wow. Unbelievable. Unbelievable! Well, absolutely, that's for sure. We'll get and we'll, and we'll get as a, and as a as a as a like working on his team is that what Jonathan gave? That's exactly what you get on. Like he, they, they want everything from you. They want those surprises and you, your dedication, and they want you on their team because of who you are. And that invitation is amazing. Something that I think comes very much comes across just already in, in talking to you is that, you know, movies for you are a life experience as much as they are a, a uh, you know, an artistic experience and a professional experience. And, and it's, and, and I think people, I want, really want people to understand who listen to this, that, you know, when you're making a film and when you enter a director's world, you're becoming a part of their family in the best possible way, in the best scenarios, like you said, you know, when it's really fulfilling. No, absolutely. And, you know, you're coming in. Also, it's, it's humbling in the beginning. You're coming in um, late in the process. With Jonathan, though, it was different. Like, I would read screenplays. Mm. I would visit his sets always from mm. then on. He would involve me from the very beginnings. Mm. And, uh, mm -hmm. um, but, but still, you're, you know, you're, then your, your real work starts after all that has happened. Mm -hmm. And there's so much to catch up on. And, when you watch a film, you, we are all take certain things uh, with, uh, you know, it will affect each one of us in a different way because we bring personal experiences to anything that we, uh, that we uh, live or, or uh, the, the way we experience the world has a lot to do of what our personalities and our, our, our own experiences are. And so you can, easily interpret a scene in a way that maybe is not what that scene really means in the whole. Mm 
like mm. from its inception. Mm -hmm. So the journey of discovering is that, you know, the closeness of your teamwork and that the, 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 the goal is that you end up in the same spot mm. where you, you, we all look at that work of art with the same perspective and mm -hmm. understand the core message of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh, just a, a few more things about Something Wild, because I think what's so kind of wonderful about this is, is you know, Jonathan, what I love about him, and, and, and it's, it's obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. When I when I was, you know, rewatching his movies with Paul Thomas Anderson in mind, I started to see all these interesting echoes between uh, PTA and Jonathan Demme. And particularly when you look at Demme's films with how he was always working with source music, but then, yes. he, would but then he would also work with score, but score from David Byrne quite often, which is, course, which, yes. which is, which is very, very interesting. And, and, uh, and even on Something Wild, he talked in this other interview that I had watched, he talked about how you guys, he said you guys got 90% there with all of the source music, but you had a little bit more to, to go. And and so for the scores, you brought in uh, John Cale and is it Laurie uh, Johnson? Laurie Anderson. Laurie Anderson. Laurie Anderson. Laurie Anderson. And so just for people who don't know, John Cale was part of the Velvet Underground and, and Laurie Anderson, I believe, was was married to Lou Reed and, and was- That's also, later, but she later, was like- yeah. they stayed she's the first you know, really um, conceptual artist you know, that, right. Uh, right. that entered into the mainstream where, you know, she brought, you know, a new sensibility to uh, music. And she's part of that world of uh, minimalist uh, artists like Steve Reich and uh, Philip Glass and belongs and as well belongs to the Velvet Underground right. uh, uh, sensibility and times. So she was the crossover, you know, a, a, a artist, and she is, uh, that uh, developed her own genre, I would right. say. And, right. uh, yeah. and and talk about working with them on that film. I mean, in terms of what, like the, 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 because the, do you remember that there was some, uh, that they were brought in to do two specific pieces of music and then something happened? Uh, of uh, course I remember. Yeah. I remember the day because they were, Jonathan knew both of them uh, from, uh, you know, from his uh, uh, association with uh, David Byrne from Stop Making Sense and mm. probably, I don't know, but he knew knew them personally and um, and he wanted, he didn't want to, he wanted something that would be very minimal in the in the film and also something that would be uh not feel like a score mm. and he loved the, the combination of the uh, female point of view and the male point of view uh, and okay. the whole idea was that she would represent her and he would represent him, so the the she would be the the more more the love story of the of the piece, and John Cale would be the the turn turning point of the menace and right. the spookiness that comes in. And so we organized uh, a meeting between the two of them. They had not not no maybe they knew each other. I don't remember, but they had not collaborated. So wow, we went to to. Um, um, Laurie Anderson's wonderful loft studio in uh, in Tribeca, and then and so 
had a meeting with her and then John Cale arrived. So we introduced the two of them and Jonathan and I left. And I, rem I remember this like today, we went we so, you know, so excited about this collaboration. And, you know, I was just really following him. I did not know that world very well. I discovered sure, sure. it afterwards, you know, through him and with him. And, but I knew who they were. And so I was in awe, you know, just meeting them <laughs> and being in the same room uh, with them. Uh, and I remember Jonathan and I went off to the Odeon to have this wonderful brunch and to leave them alone. And then we show up there and there is only Laurie Anderson. And, I, and John, I, I think that meeting between them lasted maybe five minutes and then John Kale. It did not. They were not really. They wanted to do their own thing. It was not a, you know, a collaboration that was natural, I think, mm, okay. probably now thinking back and so they went off into their own world but what then what happened was that john kale started writing the love theme and laurie anderson started writing these spooky background wonderful clusters and so they switched roles completely wow, wow. and that was and that's what's in the film yes yes that is so cool i mean it's just yeah but but that's again jonathan you know not being stuck on an idea mm, mm. but being open Mm, mm. So if John Cale wants to write a love theme, why not? Why it's not? interesting. Why not? And I also think it really stresses the the mystery of filmmaking and the organic nature of it, which that word organic is so overused, but it's true because like you said, we're dealing with people and just yeah. the, the whole idea that you really never know what's going to happen when, when you start putting music to, to picture or when a musician starts watching it and playing. And, and it's so fantastic because that's it right there. I mean, that it's just completely unpredictable, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, uh, okay. So uh, obviously we're going to come back to Jonathan Demi again, but I wanted to kind of move, you know, through some of the other films. Yeah. I, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about when you worked on big, uh, mostly because is that the first time you worked with Howard Shore? That was one of the first times, uh, but the first time really uh, that, that, because I was an assistant to Tom Drescher when I met Howard and, uh, and he was uh, the editor on a Scorsese film that Howard did early on, and that and Howard Howard's studio was at Sound One, hmm. you know, in the in the space where Garfunkel used to be. So wow. Paul Simon was still there, and then the Garfunkel space became. I mean, it's such a beautiful that was like a like historical building. Absolutely. So I would run into Howard, and then finally, when I got onto something wild, I would run into him in the hallway. Said, "Hey, I'm a music editor." <laughs> <laughs> And then I think, I'm not sure, because Big was very, a, a short, uh, 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 a short uh, time for me because they took it to Los Angeles to finish. So okay. somebody else took over. I was here on the sets, really. But the first film that Howard took me to was uh, Dead Ringers. Oh, wow. Right. What right. a beginning with David Cronenberg. I mean, right. 
And what was that like? So let's just go, because I mean, first of all, Howard Shore worked for so many years with Cronenberg and with so many other wonderful you know, filmmakers. But I, I mean, his work with Cronenberg is so singular because Cronenberg is such a unique vision. So what was yeah. it like to work with David Cronenberg? Because I'm a huge fan of all of his films. And I actually, when I was a kid, I saw Dead Ringers and I remember talking about it at school and I got in trouble. I got sent to the principal's office because they were like, oh, wow. what are you, you're, 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 you're 10 years old. Why have you seen this movie? What did you, <laughs> what's wrong with you? So I, I mean, I, I. You know, they're doing a remake now. Oh boy. I, I have, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. I know. I, I mean, there's no, if there's anyway. no, Cron, if there's no Cronenberg, there's no dead ringers, but I understand. Right, I understand. Yeah. 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 So, so tell me what that was like to meet him. And, and also, you know, I guess well, it's, that was yeah. scary and strange. And the film was so strange and mm. so scary. And, uh, um, and Cronenberg is the opposite of what you would expect. Mm. You know, mm. when I first met him, there he was, you know, very proper in a, you know, Brooks Brothers shirt with an attaché case. And then he makes these movies that are, you know, only his eyes and those big glasses, you know, give it away that there's something else going on there. (laughs) He has a wonderful sense of humor. He is a very, uh, you know, he's a very singular style and director. Mm. And I think Mm -hmm. there wasn't really... um, that much experimenting. He and Howard get had a very uh, 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 symbiotic relationship. They've mm. known each other as school children. Right. I think right. That, right. Uh, right. So they have a, uh, you know, they had such a history. So for me, really, was the the fact of being there. We moved to we moved to Toronto to mm. to uh, uh, because his films are always done there, which right. one appreciates so mm. much and mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and and we had a i it was a it was a you know a, a, a time of discovery and understanding his films because mm-hmm. i had not known his films before i did oh really? really interesting uh i mean i knew that but i was a little bit afraid of them they're terrifying i mean they're especially terrifying. especially the I'm, early ones you know the early ones the early ones yeah. but then you meet him and you start understanding the um well, he has a certain fascination towards that, and and you know this uh, the uh, the need to um, to 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 challenge mm-hmm. and to challenge, but they're never. Well, then I understood there's so much th- meaning behind those films, and they're based on his uh, views on life and philosophers and and books and uh, and uh, the you know the, the 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 grand picture of what uh, uh, certain aspects of uh, modern life mm-hmm, mm-hmm. brought to this world. Absolutely, crashes that and uh, naked that, lunch. This well, is a tragic well, naked lunch, of course. Yeah, I mean, which now? So I, I'm just curious, though, just to kind of to kind of keep in terms of talking about the work. You know, that's a that's. obviously that feels like an experience that is very much married to working with a very, very strong composer, you know, somebody who has a real musical vision for the film. So how, how, how did you sort of, uh, for you, how do you, how do you work with composers and what, what is that journey like versus doing a movie that is mostly source music or, you know, like on something wild? Well, Howard introduced me to that because he really, we became friends Mm. Uh, we had a very similar um, uh, sense of humor, 
and uh, sensibilities. Uh, we liked similar, like there was a certain connection and he invited me into the process mm. and he opened that door to me. So when he was uh, right, uh, maybe not so much on Dead Ringers yet, but he wanted me involved. And mm -hmm. he would, like when he was write his first demos, I was the first one to hear them. Wow. And uh, we would talk about them. Uh, from that to, you know, um, he opened the, my mind to, to uh, uh, understanding score mm -hmm. and uh, understanding the, you know, his not only the process, but the meaning of it and the, um, and my place as not a note taker, but a participant in the mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, when we would go to recording sessions, I, you know, there are these forms that usually a, you as a music editor, you kind of write, you know, takes and things, but I realized that already is being done by 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 the assistant engineer mm. and uh howard was open for me to you know develop my own system and i would follow the recording session in the booth uh, as a diary of that day because mm. i'm there howard is conducting mm -hmm. i'm there with the close to the director you mm -hmm. know the worst i think for a musician is after a take silence you know nobody <laughs> says anything right so and it could be the greatest thing that you just did but so i was there to promote that conversation and if the director had a comment i you know i would encourage and then i would write these diaries you know of my impressions like when i love the take i would write bravo maestro he loved that kind of a, you know <laughs> we had a little joke and so and, and then i would i would write what the director said uh -huh. what the director said secretly and what he was public you know but <laughs> and at the end of each day i started making copies of these diaries and wow. we have books, you know, so, but then it was helpful to me because I remembered why a certain take was good or a certain mm. bar of a certain, I would write down what Howard said at the moment, you know, and when the memory was very visceral and immediate mm. and I, I, I had pages of, you know, like of that, of mm. the conversation. So I would know exactly when mm -hmm. we were then, because Howard liked to record many takes and uh, he's a perfectionist. And mm -hmm. um, the mixing process started with putting these takes together. Mm -hmm. So we relied on these diaries on uh, what, how to uh, assemble the master take. Right. Very much like when, you know, as a director, when you're watching dailies and you're circling your selects, et cetera, and all that same process that you're then exactly. going to, you know, create an assembly, but you're doing it with the, with the scoring session. You're going to score, but, and if you don't write the reason why, you'll mm. do, you won't remember it. No, absolutely not. <laughs> it's, it's so impossible. Yeah. So it, a circle take without a meaning doesn't really mean, <laughs> doesn't really tell you much. So you have right. to re-listen, but you can't re-experience the moment. Mm, of when that was done. That's so true. It's so true. And it, again, it talks, uh, it speaks a lot to, you know, for anyone who's listening as a filmmaker, trying to be as present as you can be for every bit of the process, you know, every bit, it, every bit yeah, because, exactly, exactly. 
uh, 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 you know, which is just, it, it's just so beautiful. And, the, and obviously, you know, it's the proof is in the pudding with those movies. A movie like Dead Ringers is amazing. Uh, it's particularly that score. It always, it always reminds me of a Pedro Omodovar film. Uh-huh. You know? Yes, the romanticism of yeah, it, right? Yes, yes, yes. yes. And the, yes lush- the humanity of it, because I think Pedro Almodovar is one of those, like he finds beauty mm. in every uh, human condition. Absolutely. And that's what makes him such a, so yes, you're, you're right. And and so I wanted and I wanted to talk about Jonathan again because Married to the Mob uh, comes uh, a little later and and I think that's another movie where the music is again is so wonderful I mean even that opening the opening credits with Rosemary I know, in the train <laughs> with, but what I love about it is that it's Rosemary Clooney okay yeah. sing, sing, singing uh, that, that you know uh, uh, that's Amore and yeah. or, or not not that's Amore it's um what is the what's the title it's a uh, Oh my goodness. Mambo Mambo Italian Mambo Italiano. Mambo Italiano. Mambo Italiano. Right. And 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 it's that song which is so iconic and automatically you're like okay we're in the Italian American world and then it's the it's the POV of the train. It's exactly. just it's sort of pure cinema in that and which Jonathan always did that wonderful expressive cinema that was POVs that made you feel uh, Exactly. In, in the movie. Exactly. You and, know it from the beginning, from the first shot, you know, mm. you're in Jonathan Demi movie. Yes, you're right. I'm sorry. I didn't mean no, to. No, no, not at all. Not at all. I, I And it's so just talk about working on that movie a little bit because it also has some really wonderful, again, wonderful source music. Again, a score by David Byrne, but you have uh, young Chris Isaac, you have Debbie Harry. You also have Sinead O'Connor before I think anyone knew she was Sinead O'Connor. I know. <laughs> that was Jonathan, you know, and uh, Gary Getzman at that time was the music supervisor. Ah. And both he and Jonathan shared passion for music and Jonathan was all, but Jonathan was always tapped into what is happening now in music and had Mm -hmm. really such a taste for Mm -hmm. alternative uh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, uh, world in music that Mm -hmm. is so evident in, uh, and I learned so much from him and I gravitated towards that, you know, rather than the pop culture and learned so much uh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. from him. And that's what he brought. But then, you you know, the opening, it was his idea. And um, and the opening credits, you know, by the great Pablo Ferro did oh, all amazing. of his credits. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and where you juxtapose that, uh, you know, the iconic Italian song that you can, it could be, uh, you know, connected to an Italian uh immigrant family to an Italian family there and to mafia or whatever it is, mm-hmm. but very core Italian mm-hmm. uh, and juxtaposed with a murder that happens in the train. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and it's, it's just for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, it's, it's so surprising. Alec Baldwin is terrific, but Michelle Pfeiffer really is outstanding. Oh my God, <laughs> outstanding, you know, because yeah, it's like Melanie Griffith in something yeah, wild. hundred percent. Women characters in Jonathan's films, like, you know, Anne Hathaway in, uh, uh, Rachel getting married is mm. unforgettable. Is unforgettable. Abs- it's and it, it's so funny to me because it's a performance that I feel like everyone loved that performance in Rachel getting married, but then now she's just the girl in Devil Wears Prada. You know they <laughs> they forget right away. But that but but that's and she loved that. I mean that was her. You know she named her son after Jonathan. Wow, really? Oh, that, that's so that's so beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, and so uh, okay, I want to talk about um. When you when so you also did the movie Frantic, which is that yes. your first film with Polanski? Yes, imagine. So not only 
am I, I'm, I'm thrown into Paris, recording in Rome, meeting Ennio Morricone, working on a Roman Polanski film. The editor is Sam Osteen, who is a special mentor and person in my life and who got me there. Wow, it was Chinatown, correct? Is the editor he was, of Chinatown? He, he, yeah. he was, yes. Yeah, His first yeah. film was uh, Who is Afraid of Virginia Woolf? <laughs> and then, yes, Chinatown, all of Mike Nichols' films and Chinatown and Rosemary's Baby. I mean, how did you get that job? And what was it like? I mean, obviously, Polanski is an incredibly complicated human being, but there is no question that he is one of the all-time great filmmakers and directors, period. And a beautiful human being. I just have to still go on the record and say this. Okay. Beautiful. Uh, Passionate, uh, um, giving, and incredibly generous. Anyway. No, no, no. What I, I mean, what was so? What was it like? I, I'm really curious. What was it like to? Again, it was one of those things where I asked for a job. Mm-hmm. I was uh, uh, the uh, uh, Sam Osteen's assistant editor was my great friend. He's the one that I met at Sound One in the beginning. He worked on on Four Friends, also Glenn mm-hmm. Cunningham. Okay. And uh, and Sam was going to uh, uh, Paris to do. Uh, this uh, this film with uh, with, uh, with Roman and Glenn was on his way with him. I was uh, just uh, coming back from Yugoslavia, where I finally received my um, my green card. It was uh, and um, to celebrate it, I went uh, back to New York via Paris because I had friends there. Glenn was there. And, uh, and so Glenn, you see, these friends are amazingly important in one's life, right? Like mm-hmm. Camila urged me to ask Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Glenn urged me to ask Sam for this job. Mm-hmm. And so we had lunch together, he and Sam and me. And uh, the lunch was going. I was afraid to ask. And then dessert came and Glenn just hit me under the table. <laughs> and uh, I said... So I turned to Sam and I said, Sam, can I ask you a question? And he turned to me and he said, Susanna, you can ask me anything you want. <laughs> I said, I would like to work on this film. He said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I was back in Paris a, a couple of months later. Wow. And then I met Polanski and I think... It was also, you know, that's where my languages came very mm-hmm. handy because I, because of French and Italian and uh, where I was uh, well, and also fluent the- in those. And that, that's how I could work with Morricone. And he, you know, then became friends with him and his family. And I think it's be- very much due to, uh, to the language not being a barrier. Right. And what, what, I mean, I guess, and it's also interesting too, that, you know, you coming from Yugoslavia and Roman Polanski from Poland, I mean, that's a, there's a, there's certainly a connection in, in that. Completely. In our that. Slavic, our Slavic background. I remember we would get on, we would get our per diems and it was, uh, you know, for weekly, per, like you would get, and, mm. uh, and, uh, and it was always Beric and Polanski always asking for an advance because <laughs> we would spend everything. <laughs> so we were cautioned by the accountant 
Perich and Polanski, like going to the, you know, to the principal's office. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I guess I guess two questions I have is what was it like in terms of the creating the musical uh, language of that film with with Polanski, and then and then what was it like to work with Maestro Morricone? I mean, my God, that's unbelievable. Terrifying. I don't know what I, I, I mean, I was so scared that you know. Um, I had done a prepared film for recording sessions for many films as an assistant. And uh, um, uh, Suki Buckman was my assistant on this. And we were in Paris together. But I think I had to go to Rome by myself. I can't remember now why. But I was making these... um, At the time, you would... In order for recording sessions so that you could record over and over a take Mm -hmm. to the same scene, Mm -hmm. uh, you would take the scene and make a loop out of it, right? Mm -hmm. You would would cut the scene out and turn it into a loop so that in the projector, it could could stop and always go forward. Mm -hmm. So you could do a new take. Mm -hmm. And um, the way to, to know, for the conductor to know how to start, you had to do streamers. They're called streamers, which are lines actually drawn on the film that would announce two seconds before Mm. your downbeat. Mm. Now you have beeps, you have metronomes, and you have digital uh, uh, helping hands. But there was a visual so that a green line that would go from, you know, that would come on the screen from right from like so from the from the upper right Mm -hmm. to the from the upper left to the lower right Mm -hmm. and so this green line you had two seconds to prepare for your downbeat wow so you would draw those lines or sometimes use architectural tape that was transparent so it could show colors Mm -hmm. so i prepared for our meeting i prepared these loops so we were meeting at the studio forum in Rome and that's where I met Ennio. You know, I was there with my loops and, <laughs> and um, he was very formal. And when he came in and, uh, and so these loops come, start coming. So he loved to, he was a, he is a, compo- a composer who had a metronome built in. Hmm. So with the way he would prepare for his sessions was a stopwatch so he would know that his uh, composition is correctly timed and at right tempo. And he would just, with a stopwatch, uh, 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 check each scene with his uh, score in front of him. Wow. And as I was so nervous that once we started these loops and I realized I made a huge mistake. And instead of going from upper left to the lower right, I went from the lower left to the upper right you know in complete opposite direction oh god so suddenly you know like when that it's very confusing right so he started screaming in this you know because he didn't know what was and um and uh and then the projector stopped and he turned to me and he said i'm not screaming at you <laughs>
you know, these people, they're the great, great people. Like Roman Polanski did something similar for me and Sam Osteen. I had made another mistake on Frantic. At the mm. end of Frantic, the studio was not happy with the original ending. They mm. wanted a more romantic ending. Sure. And so they had to reshoot. And um, they reshot at the studio, Warner Brothers, Tom Mount, everybody was in the screening room uh, watching the whole film with this new ending while we were still editing upstairs. I was conforming as the project and then, you know, bringing the reels down and the, 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 the new ending was romantic, you know, and Harrison Ford with, uh, uh, takes her in his arms and he's, you know, like doesn't just leave her there. And sure. Morricone wrote, you know, peace for that. That's very romantic. Of course. I, in a hurry, uh, forgot to conform the music. So I only conformed the sound so that, uh, once that scene came on and that everybody was expecting. And I walk into the stu- into the screening room, like very tiptoeing. Mm. And then Roman and Sam Osteen walk behind me. And that's when I realized what I had done. So instead of when Harrison Ford picks up the girl, what you hear is, you know, the motorboat <laughs> from the old ending going, you know, and traffic lights and traffic and cars and all that. <laughs> And you were supposed to hear this romantic score and the lights come on, but I hear a chuckle, you know, so I am terrified because there's the whole studio and you know what Roman and Sam do? They call me like this, come over and Roman puts an arm around me and he turns to the studio. He said, let's go have a coffee and Susanna will fix it in a moment. He stood by my side, you know, like by his team. Wow. It was amazing. Wow. That's really, That's, I mean, those are the great people, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because and they, Morricone was that way as well. Because they treat you like family. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not just oh, a the, human yeah. being, you know, well, like yes, they understand yes. human error mm. and it's, uh, they understand that, uh, you know, where it comes from. They mm-hmm. can sympathize, relate, uh, understand, accept. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And life, life is more important than anything else. Absolutely. That's, you know, all we really have is each other in the end. That's for sure. So I want to talk about Silence of the Lambs because for so many reasons, I mean, it, it is, it's, it's really one of my very favorite films ever. And what I love about it is that obviously Jonathan Demme, but more importantly, it's a film, it's really, it's a horror movie that works as a drama it works as a as a you know a, as a complete to me story and film experience that transcends everything transcends genre you know transcends uh uh what would be normally just sort of a thriller type movie and i what i also think it represents at least from just now having spoken to you and and talked about your life and career it does represent to me this really wonderful meeting of source music and score you know because it's got amazing moments with songs but then it's got that amazing howard short score so amazing yeah so just talk to me about you know how you how you came to 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 get that job and what it was like making that movie and that journey well it was uh, you know it was a not because it was a jonathan demi film sure, and by that sure, time sure sure I became part of his team mm-hmm, and that's, mm-hmm. it was, you know, a wonderful um, feeling that, you know, that he would, and he understood that, you know, like we're all insecure, right. In any mm-hmm. kind of a freelance 
position one is uh, in how because you can't count really on anything so mm -hmm. he would always make sure with his team to announce his film early on so mm -hmm. you knew he understood you know that we would all be you mm -hmm. know you never mm -hmm. know and so he would always announce it uh that um the film is being done and kind of reserve that that you're, you're on you know reserve mm -hmm. that time and it's you know us mm -hmm. again mm -hmm. so that's how i ended up on it and he was curious about exploring score in a more traditional not traditional because howard is not a traditional composer so but uh you know but in a more score-like way mm. to tell the story of clarice Mm. because it's mm. it's really her story mm -hmm. if you mm -hmm. think about it and, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had known Howard and I was I was so eager to introduce the two of them because I had known Howard now for a while and uh, and so Jonathan called him and uh, and they were on they 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 were you know they 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 related to each other and uh and jonathan uh uh as always you know gave him full reign the mm -hmm. only direction he gave howard was uh the score is from her point of view uh that's it and if you watch the film it's always that absolutely absolutely and it's so emotional it's such an emotional score such i mean i emotional. I think about it now, and especially like the stuff when she sees her father again, and that, and 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 you know the 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 way it is really her leitmotif, you know, her theme, yes. uh, the whole time. Uh, yeah. it, it it's so affecting. And then and and the other thing I wanted to ask about just a particular story is how did you guys come up with the Tom Petty uh, piece of music for that for that scene? That was already in the screenplay. Okay. Oh, really? It was. It was. <laughs> Interesting. It, was. it had to be an iconic American song for an iconic American girl that mm. she was. Mm. She yeah. was, uh, yeah, that it's, was there. It's perfect. Who came up with it? I don't know whether Jonathan put it into the script or uh, I don't know. Is it in the book by any chance? You know, I know the Goldberg <laughs> variations are in the book. Huh. Interesting. I'd have but, to. That's a I, really but I'm not sure. If the song, I don't know really no. the origin. No, that's that's a really question. great question. That's a great question. When you're working on a film, how how do you sort of keep yourself organized, or how do you keep your library of music? How it's sort of a base, you know, not a basic question, but more of a craft question. You know, how how do you uh, organize yourself in general with music so that when you when you and then how do you start on a film? Just from your own perspective, do you sit down and read the script? How, how do how do you generally start? Yeah, well, my library is kind of all over the place mm. because I don't like to categorize things. Mm. Uh, I have a live one one part of my library is uh, by composer, film composers, let's say, and mm -hmm. then I, I I replenish that. So I do a lot of research if a if a certain composer is on a uh, is on a film. I you know, that's then my go-to to make sure that I am familiar with all of their mm. opus. And um, otherwise, I listen to a lot of uh, new music. Mm. I always like to, I don't like to rely only on 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 what I know. Mm. I uh, Every film inspires me to look for something new. And then I discover things I didn't even know about. So I, I look into... I look a lot into um, uh, uh, cinema, 
from other countries. Like that's how I discovered a few years ago this duo of brothers, uh, Yevgeny and Sasha Galperin. Uh. And um, I uh, started talking to everybody about them because everything I heard. And it was, I was doing research on The Giver. Right. That was the film okay. to do my temp. And I always like to look into, rather than going backwards, I go forwards so that in each film, I feel fresh as well. Then I can always complement with some things that I already know. But if I, certain, if I find something new that inspires me, I like to go that way because that's how I give individuality to each one of the films. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I listen. And those two composers actually w- did Welcome to Chechnya, correct? And uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yes, because of, because you found them and you and you got them you got them that job. <laughs> well, that was a given. They were already then. I I I had I had a, a few years ago. I had used them as a temp on a film, and it worked so well that they then came to America and did that film. Wow. And when we met, we felt like we knew each other forever. Right. Because I knew, I knew their music so well that I felt mm-hmm. like, and also there we share a, a background together. You know, they're Russian mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and uh, they're fantastic. Fantastic. Because that, that, you know, I watched Welcome to Chechnya, which anyone who hasn't seen it, it's an amazing documentary. Amazing. You know, it, it's, it's, it's like a, like a, uh, a, a, a spy thriller, you know I mean? In the way that yeah. it sort of, the way that it unfolds in terms of how, exactly. you know, and, and, and yet it's so horribly disturbing in terms of what yeah. is happening right now yeah. in our, in our world. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, I just felt like their music gave it such dimension, uh, you know, no beyond, question. beyond a, a documentary. So anybody yeah. who hasn't seen it should definitely see it. And I, I, I'm so glad you're promoting that film because it's really, really riveting. It's mm. riveting and so necessary mm. to know. Mm. And David Francis with that director, I'm working with him now in his new documentary, oh, wow. uh, about the, um, development of the vaccine. Uh, and, wow. uh, he is a really, truly, a person concerned for humanity. Yeah. And when I saw he, when I when he when he invited me to see the some of the images of che- of a Welcome to Chechnya before, as they were editing it, he does like to involve me early, and uh, and he has a beautiful, beautiful editor. They're partners, and uh, Tyler Walk and. Uh, the they showed me a few of the scenes and first of all dealing with um russia understanding Mm. the culture there Mm. Uh, it was a given that i would suggest yevgeny and sasha Mm. and uh because they would understand it and they would have the urgency of wanting to have that problem seen and being involved because they are very humanistic and uh, very um, engaged hmm. in the world and, uh, and incredible composers. So I sent Taylor immediately some of their scores that I had in my library. Hmm. And it was, I mean, and then Evgeny and Sasha were, you know, watched the film. And again, I mean, there was no question that they wanted to do this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's an amazing movie for anyone who hasn't seen it. Welcome to Chechnya on HBO. And I just wanted to ask you, with with this film, Ma- a master builder, was that Jonathan's last film? Was that the was that your last film? No, with, no, that wasn't the last. Film. Okay, okay. 
but it was creatively the most fulfilling last film <laughs> because um, uh, that was when uh, you know it was a it was the world of uh, cinema that Jonathan really loved, which is very independent, mm. very free in that way, and uh, original in terms of uh, a challenge. How do you open up uh, stage play mm-hmm. to a film language, but yet not feel imposing cinematic sensibilities into something that doesn't invite them? Uh, the play was... Uh, 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 Tell us, tell the audience what the play is about. Yeah. The, the play is about um, a dying architect. Mm. Uh, it's an Ibsen play, a later work, very much autobiographical, about a dying architect who is imagining um, uh, 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 um, a vision of his last um, uh, piece and also uh, imagining an. Uh, a, a love that he hasn't, that he lost. Hmm. And through it, you find out the tragedy of the family hmm. uh, that uh, um, has dealt with the loss of children, which made the uh, recovery of love in that family impossible. And also, I feel I feel like it deals with ego, you know, artistic ego. Oh, absolutely, which which definitely, is definitely, of course, yeah. Which is so, the, yes, a very, very, very yes, exactly, of course. No, 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 for, yeah, no, yeah. no. I, I and what what's so interesting about it is that is that you know, first of all, it stars Wallace Shawn. It has it has an incredible cast of actors. Uh, you know, yeah. I feel like of New York actors who exactly who, who who it seems like just sort of came upstate. To, to have this wonderful experiment uh, uh, in this beautiful little town that it's sort of set in, but that this balance of the play and cinema to me is so uh, expressed in the opening, which kind of reminded me of Married uh, to the Mob in that it's this wonderful low angle of, yes. the cam- of the camera looking up at all the towers of the houses this architect has built, but it's this POV that just kind of brings you into the world as if you're coming to the town and then you use it again and again and again in the film. And, and it's just such a wonderful balance of performance and emotion, you yeah. know, with no music, you know, with, with silence and, and the words. And then the moments where you do bring the music in are all psychological. It, 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 that's what it feels like to me. Yes. They, they're very, they're They are. And you see that opening shot, um, uh, that, that's all. That was the imagined uh, village uh, where the town where this would take place. The, the 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 fortunate thing about the the location of the play itself was that uh, uh, Wally Sean and Andre Gregory, who have mm. been partners for a long time, spent uh, I think it was about fifteen years on may, on uh, uh, translating the play. Wow. Uh, well, until they were happy with their translation. It was their passion, <laughs> passion project. And then uh, it was given the uh, uh, open uh, window of performances, just, I think, maybe a two-week performance at uh, Brownstone, which uh, is in the East Village, in the West Village, in the, mm-hmm. by Washington Square, uh, close to... 
where uh, the it was the Penn and Art Building that now mm-hmm. is a private residence. It was the last mm-hmm. piece performed there. Mm-hmm. So the play was actually performed in the house. Wow! And then the outside was 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 created as if that house were outside of the city. Wow. Wow. Which it, it originally in the play it is, huh. and um, and so the um, and that's when Jonathan then they wanted to record that play because they knew they had only limited time. It was never going to be performed again, and that's how they called Jonathan. Okay, so wait a minute. Now that that's that's so basically the film within the house is essentially a live produ- production of this play being exactly. done that he is filming and then he is building the cinematic language exactly. around. Wow, wow. Exactly. Exactly. So so cool. Isn't that amazing? Truly amazing. I mean especially yeah. it just, and and also it just it just to me I don't know it 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 has. It also feels very connected to Rachel getting married in terms yes. of the sim, the simplicity, the handheld camera. Exactly. You know, and and that's what and, he loved. Cinema verite to mm, its most, you know, essence. Mm, mm, I could mm. be there. That could be there in in real time and place and moment. That moment. Mm. Nothing superficial. Yeah, everybody. I mean, although you know, there is everything super. You know, well, I mean, cinema as it is. You know, the you know, to uh, two dimensional world that uh, transports us into sure. another three dimensional world. You know, of mind. course, of course. And I, I guess, uh, uh, you know, just to sort of, you know, in closing, uh, you know, what, you know, what would you say really was kind of. I don't know. What did you? What would you say you learned from Jonathan, um, and that you sort of that you keep with you every day and, 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 you know, with it from that experience. Um, he's a constant challenge and wanting to have me and others, but this, you know, I'm talking about myself, uh, mm. uh, involved, mm-hmm. uh, that then he opened my courage to be more participant in other situations on other productions. Like on Master Builder, he didn't know what we should do with music, but he wanted to do something. So I then, because it was, you know, this is through him what I I approach every project in a very, um, um, in a very, in a, in a way where, in a very serious way where I do a lot of research and, uh, and read a lot and I reread the play, but not only the play, but the time that it was written and Ibsen and being, you know, such a feminist and, you know, he opened the world to woman expression. It was so obvious that Jonathan would choose something like that, although Master Builder is not necessarily the experiment of, of the ex- expose of that although in some ways it is because of the young woman in it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but um i also went into the you know like how like he would ask me what we should do with music there mm-hmm. and i went into you know like researching and and thinking about the works that were done at that time and the relationship that ibsen and Grieg developed a very close relationship between music and poetry and you know per gint was a play in a poem play and and uh and and became an iconic piece of music mm-hmm. uh so i thought why not, you know, where, where we should go was perhaps into that world of Nordic uh, composers and mm-hmm. develop what Ibsen would have related to. And that led me to research 
uh, from Greek to Sibelius, uh, Sibelius, who I love very much. And, um, and, uh, and then I had all of this knowledge that I gathered, and Jonathan and I met on a bench in uh, Washington Square at lunchtime because he, would, he again invited me to come to the, to the filming, to the set. And, uh, and so I thought, you know, this is such a small film but such a grand big mm. idea why mm-hmm. don't we use the music in a grand big idea absolutely the music is about that and so and he loved that and that's and then i found the um uh, uh of sibelius and that became the basis of the score and wow. it opens up the film opens with the its um original conception it's a waltz it's mm. a very sad waltz oh, yeah. that takes you into the into the house and then and then we hired uh you know two composers paul cantillon mm-hmm. to uh uh to compose uh, a happier answer to the waltz he which would accompany the girl uh, and then we hired another composer who is also a friend of mine, Duke Boyajiev, to add a contemporary accompaniment in the uh, digital sphere to the interpretation of the waltz. So we had all these different interpretations of the waltz that I then placed in different moments and that end up with the second symphony of Sibelius at mm. the end. Mm. And that was that. Uh, an incredible journey. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, honestly, it sounds like it was one of the most, one of the freest projects you worked on in terms yes. of having, having, you know, nothing but freedom and being inspired by Jonathan, who just, you know, really seems to have inspired everyone that works around him, you know, who worked with him. No question. You know, oh, and I wanted to ask you, do you want, would you like to talk about the, the Jacob Burns uh, project? That's a, uh, that's a, an amazingly rich program that they have a cinema, a cinematech with a wonderful uh, 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 head of programming who uh, brings a really uh, world cinema to this little place outside of New York. And mm-hmm. Jonathan became associated with, the, they also have a school. He became associated with this, uh, with a, you know, as an honorary member of both the, cinema and the school and it's in his neighborhood because he he lived in Nyack and that's mm-hmm. not far away mm-hmm. and so that was his part of uh, the world and um meaning geographically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and so he brought his passion of cinema to that uh, center and started a program maybe 10 years ago called cinema rarely seen mm-hmm. and had so through the year, through a year, every Sunday afternoon, he would show a film that he loved and thought would be, uh, would, did not have an honorable projection time anywhere. So this was his, uh, his way of seeing his favorite films you know, again, experiencing them in a real environment as well as giving them mm-hmm. to a new audience that might have not seen those films. Mm-hmm. And it was a beautiful program. And after he died, they wanted to continue it. And uh, uh, last uh, September, 
actually two Septembers ago, before our 219, I guess it was, um, I was asked to be the programmer. Congratulations. Thank you. And to continue his, and it was a wonderful, I didn't do it over a year. It was a, because I, I it, it would, it would have been impossible with all of our mm. schedules. And it was a, a six week uh, run on a Sunday afternoon, like he would have done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I think some I maybe held on other days just because of our schedules. And I showed films that I knew he loved. And uh, I showed films uh, that I knew he would love to see with me. And uh, that was the inspiration. And um, I was called to continue that. So we are continuing his legacy. That is really... It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com